uh, open up to our scripture passage today. It's a, another short one. We're in Exodus chapter 20 and looking at just verse 17. So Exodus 20 verse 17. And it reads, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And this is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Lord, you know our hearts. You know everything that each one of us has been struggling with in this last week. We pray that through all of that noise, your spirit would speak to our hearts and do what only your word can do. to Transform our hearts to make us look more like Jesus. Father, we need you to do this. We cannot do this on our own. We ask that your spirit would now do and work in us for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, anyone here uh, who maybe grew up in the 90s like I did, remember the Game Genie. So this was something that had come out, and it was a cartridge that you could plug your game cartridge into and then plug it into your console, and it allowed you to access every cheat code imaginable for every game there was out there. So you, and you could get invincibility or superpowers or thousands of coins. And I had a Sega Genesis and I loved playing Sonic the Hedgehog and I also loved X-Men. That was probably my favorite game. And I remember seeing the ad one night on TV for this thing called the Game Genie. And I thought, I need that. I, I can finally beat that last level in X-Men that I've been trying so hard to get to. It was 40 bucks, more money than I had. But one day I was walking through our local Blockbuster this is full of all kinds of references that don't mean anything to people under the age of 30, game cartridge, blockbuster. <laughs> but at the blockbuster, in the game rental section, which was new, do you know what I saw? A Game Genie. And I'd seen it before, but it was always for the Super Nintendo, but now they had one for the Sega Genesis. And for only $2.99, I could rent it for like three days. So I rented it, rushed home, plugged it in, and started playing Sonic the Hedgehog. And it was awesome like five minutes. But suddenly I realized when you have infinite lives, the game's just not that fun anymore. And I soon switched out with that cartridge with X-Men. And if I remember correctly, like half of the cheat codes caused the whole game to crash, which was totally frustrating. But then finally I got some that worked, but the exact same thing happened. After a few minutes, the game was kind of boring. And before the rental was even due back, I put that Game Genie back in that blue and white with yellow highlights blockbuster case and set it atop our VCR. I thought winning the game, even if it meant using cheat codes, would be fun. And what I didn't realize was how much joy was in the struggle, trying, failing, trying again. I was wrong about what I thought I needed to be happy. We're looking at the 10th commandment here, don't covet. And coveting is in some ways trying to find cheat codes for life. Like, how can I get this thing that I don't have? And then my life would be better. And yet, as I discovered that as a young 10-year-old, I'd misdiagnosed the problem. Cheat codes won't make me happy. And in the same way, getting everything that you think you want isn't going to make you happy. We're actually really bad at knowing what we need most. We're getting to the end of the second part of the, mini, the second mini-series through the book of Exodus that we've called the gift of the law. 
And one of the things we're trying to show you is that one of the purposes of God's law that is highlighted here is it's, it's not like the eternal report card that God uses to see how much he's going to like you, but it's actually his blueprint for a beautiful community, and a community that represents his beauty in love. And what I want us to remember this morning is that we covet because we think we know better than God. We covet because we think we know better than God. And we'll look at this just three ways. First, it starts in the heart, it leads to sin, and then it's based on a lie. So this is the first command that deals firstly with our hearts. The hearts come in with all the others, but this one starts off with that. And it, it, it shines a light to what is going on in your heart and says, guess what? God cares about your thought life. God cares about your desires. In the retelling of these commands in Deuteronomy chapter 5, notice the, the word change. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. But then it says, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land or male or female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Many say that the word for covenant could, covet could just as easily be translated as desire, that this command is about the desires of your heart. Additionally, several have noticed how this commandment is like a summary or a, an umbrella of all the other commandments in that if you don't follow this command, it will lead you down a path to breaking other of the commandments. We can think of it very simply. If you're jealous of a coworker's success, you might be tempted to pass along the office gossip about them to someone else to knock them down a little bit, which would lead to breaking the ninth commandment, bearing false witness. If you're jealous of your neighbor's wife, right, you might find ways to you know, join the PTA or be at these school events to have more time with that woman that you're attracted to and grow that relationship, which could then lead to breaking the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. You see, our, our thought life is the seedbed for sin. It's like when you want to plant your garden in the spring and you just don't throw your seeds out in March because as soon as the next snow comes, all those little seedlings are going to fall over and die. And in similarly, similarly, that with many of these commands, the shame of just breaking them outright, well, it's, it's too much. We don't want people to see us break those commands, so we keep them inside. But what do you do with your seeds? Well, you start the seeds in your house in March or April. And then you nurture them and you care for them under the, the warm sunlight near a window. And then they grow stronger and then eventually they're ready to be planted outside. And in the same way, so often we tend to little gardens of sinful desires inside the warm walls of our own hearts. And we nurture them. We don't want anyone else to see them and so they're there inside. And we tend to give care and attention to those things more than you do other parts of your life. A great test is when you've got a break at work or a break at home, some free time, where does your mind always drift to? What is it you're thinking about? It's often the things that you desire, that you're jealous of, the things that you wish would happen in your life and you believe, well, this would make me feel better. And so what do you do? Well, you browse the latest sales online to look for something new to buy. Or you return to the Facebook page of another person's spouse that you've started to take an interest in. Check out the latest news to see you know, what is going to get you uptight and angry so you don't have to think so much about those things that are empty in your own soul. You pick up a YouTube video on other side gigs to make more money through this way or that way. And some of this stuff isn't necessarily 
bad, but, but notice how you are tending to those desires. You're caring for them like little seedlings that need water every day to survive. And every day through what you put into your eyes and hear, you, you feed those things. And you tend to them because you have this idea that this thing will make me happy. This is what I need to cope in the world. What seedlings of desire are you nurturing in your own heart right now? What ideas do you tend to in your free time? Or particularly, it's great, when you're extra stressed out or just feeling sad and depressed about something, where is it you turn to feel better? What desires are you kind of nurturing in the back corner to go to to help try to give your, at least numb your heart a little bit? And they often aren't bad things. Sometimes they are, but they're often not. But they're these bad things that we've turned into ultimate things. That essentially you're worshiping because of how much time and attention and care you're giving them. And so what desires and temptations, whether it's greed or lust or power or unrighteous anger or contempt or jealousy, are you feeding into your heart? And maybe nobody else knows about it but you're tending that garden in your heart with care, keeping those desires alive. And you know it's probably not good, but you convince yourself, but it's not hurting anybody. And yet what often happens? Well, in the same way as it starts to get warmer out and those seedlings grow, you set them out on your front porch for a few hours in the sun and start them to get more hardy and, and ready to live outside. And so often we kind of act out, we, we play, we set those desires, we set those things that we want out and it feels good to do it for a little while and then you do it again and you do it again this is what james talks about in james chapter one temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away these desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow it gives birth to death see this commandment is aimed at keeping those seeds from go growing into full-blown weeds that you can't pull out because they're so deep but it also shows that God cares about what goes on inside of your heart. Like your life might look squeaky clean on the outside, but that doesn't impress God because he's looking at the narrative of your heart and the things you're longing for and what you say in the moment that no one else hears. So what is it that you're doing with what goes on inside here? Those desires, those secret sins that maybe no one else knows about. Have you grown okay with them? I mean, I'm not actually doing any of this stuff. Have you just given up on trying to put them to death? Have you reached a compromise with those desires? I think probably a lot of us, we have these sinful tendencies that we hold on to because we're afraid. We don't want to give them up. They're therapeutic for us. But we know we can't go too far, and so, well, I'll let it go this far because I need it, but it won't go any further. I think this is where so many of us are. There's desires, there's lust, there's coveting that we indulge in. But we do a pretty good job of keeping those seedlings in the basement under a UV lamp where no one else sees what's growing down there. And they give us pleasure, particularly after a hard day, a stressful day. I'm going to go down there and feel a little better. And this leads us to our second point. It leads to sin. Often those seed beds of sin grow and they lead us to do things you never thought you would do classic example is, is King David in Israel. 2 Samuel 11, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. 
And he looked out over the city and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was and he was told she is Bathsheba, the, son of, or the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her and when she came to his palace, he slept with her. Here we can see that progression. David's just looking out on the city and then he sees this woman. She's beautiful. She's taking a bath, which only probably inflames those desires. And then that desire gives birth to a simple request. Hey, who is that person? And then that simple request gives birth to something that doesn't have to cross the line completely, but still does. Well, summon her. And before he knows it, he's committed adultery, and now he learns she's pregnant. And now he's stuck in even a deeper web because her husband is out at war where David probably should have been. And how does he cover this up? And so he's got to devise this incredible scheme that ends up with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, being killed and David covering it all up. It started with one second glance, one desire that grew. See, coveting leads to breaking a number, if sometimes not all, of the commandments. The heart is the seedbed of sin, and if it's left to grow, those seedlings can lead us to committing sins that you would never dream of doing. You, you, you may say, well, I would never let it go that far. Right? I, I'm in control of my own little garden here. I'm sure if you had talked to David three months earlier before all this took place, he would tell you guys, oh yeah, I would never let it go this far. And yet look how easy it is to go down that path. In the presence of those sinful desires, let's say you think, well, I've got these things deep hidden in my, the basement of my heart. No one knows they're there. I guarantee they're having other effects on your life. Listen to James 4. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? See, what is it that causes the constant fights between you and your spouse, you and your parents, you and your kids, you and your coworkers, or other family members? Right? Like, why is it when you're around them, you're always so irritable? Why is it when someone says this thing, you immediately go to code red and let them have it and blow up? Why is it it is so easy to make a critical comment about that person? And we want to say, well, that's their problem. They're the ones, right? If they wouldn't do it, I wouldn't do this. They're the ones that need to change. And yet James says, not so fast. Don't those things come from the evil desires at war within you? This verse, I remember when it first just hit me, and it's had a big impact on my life and opened my eyes to how easy it is for the sins that I nurture in here actually have an effect on the day-to-day -day life with other people around me, even when I think, well, that sin's not hurting anybody. We want to think that the relational stress that we have is the other person's fault. I hate it when they do this or when they say that. If they would just change and stop doing this, then I wouldn't get so upset. And you'll admit, I know I shouldn't let it bother me so much. I'll try to do better, but it's mostly their fault. I'm just reacting to what they started. But James doesn't let us off the hook. What if the reactions that you have in your life are more about the sinful desires that you've been nurturing in your own heart than what that other person just did to you? And what if the way that you react and you lose your temper or say something that you regret is tied to those sinful desires that you've been secretly nurturing and it's leaking out into all your other relationships? We can tie it specifically to covenant. Coveting. So you really wish your spouse was more like this. 
Why can't she be more like that, you know, his spouse? Why can't he be more like that other guy? And so when your spouse does something that reminds you how they're not like that, you get mad, not so much because of them, but because of who you wish they were. And you're comparing them to someone else you're coveting. So seed beds of discontent that you've been nurturing in the basement of your heart that are poking out into these other relationships. Actually, I don't even think it's often that, that linear. That when you're coveting and always focused on all these things you don't have, it creates a general attitude of discontent that shades all of your other interactions in life. Coveting robs you of joy and delight right now. It keeps you from seeing the good things around you. It's, coveting is like the inversion air that we get in this valley, usually around now, right? And, and we, we were reminded this morning as we're driving into church how beautiful it is, right? The pristine mountains and white-capped peaks. And coveting is like the inversion air that settles in the valley of your heart and keeps you from seeing all the beauty that is around you day after day after day. And all you can see is the yuck. Okay? And you think, I just, oh, I got to... Get out of here, this place is horrible. No, it's not that. It's what's surrounding your heart. It's clouding your vision so you can't see the good. Do you realize that the time and attention you spend for wishing for all these things that would make you happy is harmful in that it's actually robbing you of joy right now? Desire is like this black hole that is never satisfied. And then on a third point, it's based on a lie. Our lack of contentment is, is based on a lie that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That the limits that God has placed on my heart or on my life are actually bad for me. That's the lie. That if I could just have this thing or that thing, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be content. These rules that God's made for me are not for my good, but they're keeping me from my best life. If I could get a game genie for life, a few cheat codes, then I could fix all my problems. I'd win at life and I would be happy. Francis Schaeffer writes about it in, in his book, True Spirituality. And uh, fortunately, the book was packed. Many of you probably know we're moving just down the street. And every book that I needed this week was already packed. <laughs> I had to find the quote online. And this isn't quite it, but close enough. He says this. God has made us with proper desires. But if there is not a proper contentment on my part, to this extent, I am in revolt against God. And of course, revolt is the central problem of sin. When I lack proper contentment, either I have forgotten that God is God or I have ceased to be submissive to him. We are now speaking of a practical test to judge if we are coveting against God. You ever thought of it that way? We actually covet against God. A quiet disposition of the heart and giving thanks at any given moment is the real test of the extent to which we love God at that moment. Let me say that last part again. A quiet disposition and a heart giving thanks at even, any given moment is the test to which how much we love God in that moment. What's gone on in your heart this last week? What's been the balance between thanksgiving and peace and discontent and irritability? And where, does that, where does it lie? And you can tell, is it more on the thanksgiving and peace side? Well, you're loving God well more on the irritability and all you see is that cloudy brown air and nothing beautiful? Well, it might be because you've forgotten how to love God. You've co you're coveting God, actually. What does that mean? You're jealous 
of the control that God has in your life. I know better than God how to run my life. I know better than God how to do this and that thing. And that is ruining every other part of your life. It is tearing you up inside. Right? It doesn't go well to try to fight with God and think, get over God, I can do a better job than you. And yet how often don't we live our lives that way? By what goes through our minds and we say and we think in our hearts. Like, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. The lack of contentment we have in our life isn't because it's a lack of stuff or a lack of different circumstances. It's in the end a lack of God. It's not going to be found in better health, less debt, more savings, a different job, a different house, more kids, fewer kids, a different spouse, a different place to live, ongoing struggles with mental illness. Do you, you, realize, you could change every single one of those things today and tomorrow, you would wake up just as empty and miserable as you are right now. It desires this black hole that sucks the life out of your life. And I don't mean that all desire is bad. No, we, are, we should desire God. We should desire his gifts. We should desire holiness. It's okay even to want things to be better. Lord, please end this suffering. I don't know if I can take it. And yet, so often, beneath that is a discontentment towards God and how he has laid the chips down for your life. He said, no, this isn't right. I, I want to do it myself. You think... When you're discontent, what you're thinking is, I could do a better job than God. And you're trying really hard. That is why so many of us, we live in this state of stress and anxiety, because you are fighting against how God has laid down the boundaries of your life. And what joy there is found in realizing that they're good for you. Paul gives us a better uh, model in 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. And people have wondered, well, what exactly was it? Was it a physical infirmity, a mental struggle, some sort of demonic thing? We don't know. I don't think it matters at all because Paul's point is this. Will I be okay with how God has ordered the details of my life? Or will I always be fighting against how my life looks by comparing it to everybody else's? And Paul continues, three different times, I begged the Lord, take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. This doesn't mean we take it to some you know, extreme that lacks all common sense. So I'm not going to eat today because God's grace is all I need. It's not what he's saying. But we also need to recognize, so we read in Deuteronomy 8.3, yes, God humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It means you can be filled with bread and still be starving. You can have every one of your dreams come true and still wake up empty. Because there's a need in each and every one of our souls for something this earth cannot fill. And it is God himself. Not the perks you get from you know, having him as your friend, but actually him. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. God's grace is sufficient for you. And coveting is because you've bought into this lie that his grace isn't enough. And think, oh yeah, I need grace, but I need a few add-ons as well. 
Well, what you're really saying is the add-ons are what I love the most. I love this quote from Herman, Herman Bobbing, as I've read several times, where he writes, In this consists the greatness and miserableness of man. He longs for truth and is false by nature. He yearns for rest, yet throws himself from one diversion upon another. He pants for permanent and eternal bliss, yet seizes on the pleasures of a moment. He seeks for God and loses himself in the creature. He forsakes the fountain of living waters and hews out broken cisterns that can hold no water. He is a hungry man who dreams that he is eaten. And when he awakes, he finds that his soul is empty. And isn't that how so many of us are? And friends, what are you filling your soul with? Is God enough? Have you tasted his grace for you? Are you happy with him? Is he the greatest thing that you desire and say, Lord, whatever else might happen, I get you and that's okay, even though it's going to be really hard. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 20, 73 because it, it tells the story of this man who's looking at everybody else, often evil and unjust people, and say, why do they prosper? Why is their life so easy? Why do they have everything good? Why don't they have the problems I have? And he's asking good questions, right? These are wrong things and they seem to be getting away with it. And yet what I love about that psalm is halfway through, there's this moment where he realizes the real problem here is not them. But he writes this, I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seen like a senseless animal to you, God. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Let's pray. Father, um, this is something every single one of us needs so badly, and deep down we know it, and yet I think we're all so afraid to admit it. Probably many of us, if not all of us, would agree, oh yes, God is good, and I love him, and I want him. He's the best thing. And yet the next six days of our life will show our words, our deeds, and our thoughts that there are so many things we actually want a lot more than you, Father. And we pray that you would show us here in this moment a taste of your beauty, a taste of your goodness, and a reminder of how much you love sinners like us. Father, do that work. Transform us this week, we pray. And it's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. And our confession of sin is...